Chapter 12 of Good Stories for Great Birthdays. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sarah Jump. Good Stories for Great Birthdays by Francis Jenkins Olcott. February 22nd, George Washington, the Father of His Country, Part 1. Where may the wearied eye repose, when gazing on the great? Where neither guilty glory glows, nor despicable state? Yes, one, the first, the last, the best, the Cincinnatus of the West, whom envy dared not hate, bequeathed the name of Washington. To make man blush, there was but one. Lord Byron Lincoln on Washington's Birthday this is the one hundred and tenth anniversary of the birthday of Washington. We are met to celebrate this day. Washington is the mightiest name of earth, long since mightiest in the cause of civil liberty, still mightiest in moral reformation. On that name no eulogy is expected. It cannot be, to add brightness to the sun or glory to the name of Washington. It is alike impossible. Let none attempt it. Abraham Lincoln February 22, 1849 Washington was born February 22, 1732. Was appointed Commander-in-Chief of the American Army, 1775. Was made President of the Federal Convention for Framing the Constitution and Signed the Constitution, 1787. Was inaugurated First President of the United States, 1789. Issued his Farewell Address, 1796. He died at Mount Vernon, December 14, 1799. The Boy in the Valley The boy George Washington was magnificently strong and tall, with firm muscles and powerful body. He could run, leap, wrestle, toss the bar, and pitch quoits. He rode fiery horses and hunted foxes. He was a silent, determined lad, truth-telling with a wonderful grip on his temper. By the time that he was sixteen, he was an excellent surveyor, and he was a proud and happy boy when one spring day he leaped on his horse and, with a companion, rode away into the wilderness on a real job of surveying. Lord Fairfax, his close friend, owned a great estate of over five million acres stretching to the westward. A part of the estate was a wilderness and lay on the other side of the Blue Ridge Mountains. It had never been surveyed. Squatters were stealing the land, so Lord Fairfax had sent 16-year-old George Washington to survey it for him. As the boy rode over the mountains and guided his horse down the steep trail into the beautiful Shenandoah Valley, spring was busy all around him. Cascades and torrents of snow water were rushing from the mountaintops to feed the bright Shenandoah River, the Daughter of the Stars, the Indians called the river, the boy spent the better part of the first day riding through fine groves of sugar maples and admiring the trees and the richness of the land. Here and there showed the little clearings where the squatters were preparing their small farms for crops of tobacco, hemp, and corn. For some days he surveyed along the banks of the river and in the valley, roughing it at night, and many were the adventures he had about which he has written in his diary. Sometimes he slept before the campfire, or in a hut, at others in a tent. Once he was nearly burnt to death when his straw bed caught fire. He roasted wild turkeys and ate off chips for plates. 
He swam his horse through swollen streams and followed the rough roads made by the squatters. But his most exciting adventure was with the Indians. On the bank of the Potomac stood a little cabin. Near it was hung a huge kettle suspended over a place always ready for a fire. The cabin belonged to Cressap, a frontiersman, and so did the kettle. He kept the fireplace and everything in readiness for the passing Indians to cook their meals. The grateful redskins called him Big Spoon. Rain and floods drove Washington to the cabin. Big Spoon invited him to stay until the bad weather was past. On the third day, Washington looked out and saw a band of Indians carrying a scalp come toward the cabin. It was a war party returning from a raid. Big Spoon greeted them heartily, for everybody was welcome at his place. The Indians built a fire, sat down in a circle, and held a big celebration. Then they performed a war dance, while their musicians played on drums made of pots half full of water with deerskins stretched tightly over them. And as Washington watched their savage antics, he little dreamed how soon he himself would be fighting with redskins. When his surveying was finished, he returned home to make his report. Lord Fairfax was delighted with his careful work and fine maps. In fact, today, the surveys Washington made when a boy stand unquestioned. They are so perfect. Roughing it in the Shenandoah Valley was not the last of Washington's adventures in the wilderness. He was appointed public surveyor. For the next three years, he spent a great deal of time in the wilds with settlers, frontiersmen, trappers, and Indians. He grew to be over six feet tall and remarkably strong and rugged. He overcame difficulties and faced dangers through pluck and perseverance. He became a colonel of a Virginia regiment. He acquired military training and widened his knowledge of handling all sorts of men. What he learned about Indian warfare and life in the forests and in the wilderness taught him the caution and knowledge which he showed while guarding the retreat of what was left of Braddock's troops. So his adventures while a boy in the valley, and his experiences as a young man roughing it on the frontier, fighting with Indians, carrying messages through the wilderness, and serving as a soldier, all prepared Washington to become the liberator of our country. Washington was like his mother in qualities of character. He had her strength of will, love of truth, firm purpose, high sense of duty, dignity, and reverence. All these noble qualities were strengthened and made practical by her careful education and discipline. When he became great, she was quietly proud of him, and when people spoke warmly of his glory and success, she would say, But my good sirs, here is too much flattery. Still, George will not forget the lessons I early taught him. He will not forget himself, though he is the subject of so much praise. When she was informed by special messenger that Cornwallis had surrendered, she exclaimed, Thank God! War will now be ended, and peace, independence, and happiness bless our country. After the surrender of Cornwallis, Washington visited his mother at Fredericksburg, where she was living in her own little house. She was about seventy-five years old. He reached Fredericksburg, surrounded by his numerous and brilliant suite. He dismounted and sent to inquire when it would be her pleasure to receive him. Afoot and alone, he walked to her house. She was by herself, employed in a household task, when she was told that the victor chief was waiting at her door. She bade him welcome by a warm embrace, calling him George, the dear familiar name of his childhood. She spoke to him of old times and old friends, but of his glory not one word. Meanwhile, in the town of Fredericksburg, there was excitement and rejoicing. 
The place was crowded with foreign and American officers. Gentlemen from miles around were hastening into town to congratulate the conquerors of Yorktown. Citizens got up a splendid ball in Washington's honor, to which his mother was specially invited. The foreign officers were eager to meet their chief's mother. They had heard of her remarkable character. They expected to see her enter the ballroom in glittering attire, clad in rich brocades like the noble ladies of Europe. How surprised they were, when leaning on her son's arm she entered dressed simply. She was dignified and imposing. She received quietly all the compliments and attentions showered upon her. At an early hour she wished the company much pleasure, saying that it was time for old folk to be in bed. She retired, leaning on the arm of her son. "'If such are the matrons in America,' exclaimed the foreign officers, "'well may she boast of illustrious sons.'" George Washington Park Custis and Other Sources Washington's Wedding Day Washington plighted his troth with Martha Dandridge, the charming widow of Daniel Park Custis. She was young, pretty, intelligent, and an heiress. It was a brilliant wedding party which assembled on a winter day in the little church near Mrs. Custis's home. There were gathered the gay, free-thinking, high-living governor, gorgeous in scarlet and gold, British officers red-coated and gold-laced, and all the neighboring gentry in their handsomest clothes. The bride was attired in silk and satin, laces and brocade, with pearls on her neck and in her ears, while the bridegroom appeared in blue and silver trimmed with scarlet, and with gold buckles at his knees and on his shoes. After the ceremony, the bride was taken home in a coach and six, Washington riding beside her, mounted on a splendid horse, and followed by all the gentlemen of the party. Henry Cabot Lodge. Arranged. Washington and the Children. 1. There were two joyous little people who went to live with the bride in her new home at Mount Vernon. They were her two children, Jack Custis, six years old, and his sister Patsy, just four years old. Washington gave them little ponies to ride. He bought fashionably dressed baby dolls for Patsy, silver shoe and knee buckles for Jack, and for both of them toys, gingerbread figures, sugar images, and little books with colored pictures in them. He gave them each a Bible, bound in turkey leather with their names printed in gilt letters on the inside covers. 2. Washington loved all children. He always smiled at them. He was specially popular with boys. When he rode in state to Independence Hall in his cream-colored coach drawn by six bays and with postilions and outriders, boys were always at hand to cheer as he drove by and when he returned to Mount Vernon there were other boys waiting to welcome him. He could always count on boys wherever he went to shout and wave their hats. He used to touch his own hat to them as politely as if they were veterans on parade. After his great dinners at Mount Vernon, as soon as the guests were done eating, he would tell his steward to call in the neighbor's boys, who were never far away at such a time. In they would come, crowding around the table and make quick work of the cakes, nuts, and raisins the guests had left. At twilight, Washington had a habit of pacing up and down the large room on the first floor with his hands behind him. One evening, a boy who had never seen him climbed up to a high open window to look in at him. The boy fell and hurt himself. Washington heard him cry and sent a servant to see what was the matter. The servant came back and said, The boy was trying to get a look at you, sir. Bring him in, said Washington. And when the boy came in, he patted him on the head, saying, You wanted to see General Washington, did you? Well, I am General Washington.
but the little fellow shook his head and replied, No, you are only just a man. I want to see the president. Washington laughed and told him that he was the president and a man for all that. Then he had the servant give him some cakes and nuts and sent him away happy. Grace Greenwood and Other Sources Retold The Little Girl and the Redcoats When Washington with the army entered Boston after the British had evacuated the city, he made the best tavern in town his headquarters. It had been the British headquarters. The tavern keeper's little girl was running about, very much interested in all that was going on. Washington called her to him, and holding her on his knee, asked, Now that you've seen the soldiers on both sides, which do you like best? The little girl hesitated, but like the great Washington himself, she could not tell a lie, so she said, I like the redcoats best. Washington laughed at her frankness and said gently, Yes, my dear, the redcoats do look the best, but it takes the ragged boys to do the fighting. Wayne Whipple, Retold Nellie and Little Washington George Washington loved children, and, as he had none of his own, he adopted two of his wife's grandchildren, Nellie Custis and George Washington Park Custis. The little boy was known as Washington. Nellie was a beautiful child with smiling black eyes and thick curly brown hair, while her brother was of very light complexion. They had good times together at Mount Vernon. There was a delightfully fearsome pack of hounds in the kennel, French dogs, the gift of Lafayette, fierce, big-mouthed, savage, and there were litters of beautiful puppies. The stables were full of horses, fine creatures for pets and playfellows. Nellie liked to be with the horses, and was constantly alarming her grandmother as she flashed by the windows or down the lanes, mounted upon some half-broken colt. The children loved old Nelson, Washington's war-horse, they used to climb upon the fence to pat his forehead as he came racing up to greet his master. There were many other animals, gifts to Washington of friends and admirers. Among them were Spanish jackasses, Chinese pigs, and Chinese geese. There was always something going on to interest the children. They might run down to the river landing to see what strange fish Daddy Jack had caught day in and day out. Daddy Jack was always fishing there in his canoe. Or they might go to meet the hunter carrying his gun and pouch, his body wrapped with strings of game, his dogs at heel. They liked to look at the game, and smooth the thick feathers or soft fur. There were birds, squirrels, wild turkeys, molly cottontails, wily possums, and canvas-back ducks. Coaches of company, too, were coming and going. State dinners were cooked and served to nobles and dignitaries. And when the children ran about the gardens, they saw rare things growing— fig trees, raisins, limes, oranges, large English mulberries, artichokes. Then there were the mills to visit, the smithy, the shops, the fields, and the negro quarters, all in company with their dear adopted father, Washington himself. But the children, and indeed everyone, looked forward to the evening, when Washington sat with them. This was the children's hour, when by the uncertain twinkle of the homemade candles they danced and sang their little songs. The curled darling of the house was Master Washington, George Washington Park Custis. Many years later, when Lafayette visited Master Washington, then grown up, he told how he had first seen him on the portico of Mount Vernon, a little boy, a very little gentleman, with a feather in his hat, holding fast to one finger of Washington's hand. 
which finger was so large that the little boy could hardly hold on to it. As for Nellie, she wanted to romp and play from morning till night. She did not like to have her hair dressed with feathers and ribbons. She did not enjoy her books and music, and she used to cry for hours together while her determined grandmother stood guard over her, keeping her at practice on the beautiful harpsichord which Washington had given her. As for Washington, he tried to lighten little Nellie's tasks, and used to carry her off for a gallop or a brisk outdoor walk. He was always extremely fond of little girls. He liked other little girls besides Nellie. He had with him her pretty sister, Elizabeth, when he sat for one of his portraits. And in the most critical week of his presidency, Washington went to the house of one of his cabinet officers and played with his little daughters. Harriet Taylor Upton, Retold Many of the stories in this book are from the life of Washington by his adopted son, George Washington Park Custis. Seeing the President Sometimes, when President Washington went on a journey in his state coach, he wanted to travel quietly, without attracting people's attention. So he charged his courier, who rode on ahead, to make all necessary arrangements at inns, but to tell no one but the landlords that the President was coming. Often, however, the news leaked out, and was flashed throughout the countryside. Trumpets were blown as the veterans of the War for Independence gathered to welcome their chief. Village cannon roared. Every village and hamlet poured out its folk to greet the man who was first in the hearts of his countrymen. As for the school children, how eagerly they hurried to get their lessons, so that as a reward they might see General Washington. And when at last he did come, how happy the children were to be presented to him. With delight they listened to his kind voice, felt the kindlier touch of his hand, and even climbed on his knee to look up into his smiling face. George Washington Park Custis, Retold Nelson, the Hero There was one old horse at Mount Vernon, after the War for Independence, who was a hero. He was never ridden. He was cared for kindly. He grazed in a pleasant paddock. That was Nelson, Washington's favorite and splendid charger, which he had ridden on the day of the surrender at Yorktown. He was a light sorrel with white face and legs. Now that he was old, he was petted and cared for. Whenever Washington made the rounds of his kennels and stables, he stopped at the paddock. Then the old war horse would run neighing up to the fence, proud to be caressed by the hand of his master. George Washington Park Custis, retold. Caring for the Guest, told by the guest himself. I had feasted my imagination for several days on the near prospect of a visit to Mount Vernon, the seat of Washington. No pilgrim ever approached Mecca with deeper enthusiasm. The first evening I spent under the wing of his hospitality, we sat a full hour at table, by ourselves, without the least interruption after the family had retired. I was extremely oppressed with a severe cold and excessive coughing, contracted from the exposure of a harsh winter journey. He pressed me to use some remedies, but I declined doing so. As usual, soon after retiring, my cough increased. When some time had elapsed, the door of my room was gently opened, and on drawing back my bed curtains, to my utter astonishment, I beheld Washington himself standing at my bedside with a bowl of hot tea in his hand. Elkanah Watson, Condensed Thoughtful of Others Once, when Washington was stopping for refreshment at a house in Jersey, someone told him that a wounded officer was there, who could not bear the slightest sound. During the meal, Washington spoke in an undertone, 
and was careful to make no noise. After he had left the table, however, his officers began to talk in loud voices. Instantly, Washington softly opened the dining-room door, entered on tiptoe, took a book from the mantelpiece, and stole out of the room without uttering a word. His officers took the hint and were silent. The Cincinnatus of the West A man who'd fought to free the land from woe, like me, had left his farm, a soldiering to go, but having gained his point, he had, like me, returned his own potato ground to see. But there he couldn't rest, with one accord. He's called to be a kind of, not a lord, I don't know what. He's not a great man, sure, for poor men love him, just as he was poor. They love him like a father, or a brother. This little verse is from Darby's Return, a play that President Washington went to see. The moment he entered the theater, the whole audience rose to its feet and cheered. And when Darby said these lines, the audience stared hard at Washington to see how he would take them. He looked horribly embarrassed. But when Darby quickly added that he had not seen the man at all, at all because he was so plainly dressed that he passed by unnoticed, Washington burst into a hearty laugh. In the ancient days of Rome, a terrible enemy threatened the city. There was no Roman general wise enough to lead the army against the foe. There was just one plain Roman citizen whom the people trusted. They believed that he had the wisdom to save them. This was Cincinnatus the curly-haired. They sent hasty messengers to bid him come to the aid of Rome. The messengers found him tilling his land, for he was a farmer. His feet were heavy with damp earth and his clothes covered with soil. He listened to their message, and to the request of the Roman Senate that he should come at once to the aid of his country. He called his wife to bring his toga from their hut. After he'd wiped off the dust and sweat, he put on his toga and went with the messengers. So he saved Rome. Thus it was with Washington. When the call came for him to save his country, he left his plantation. So did many farmers and planters. At a moment's notice they left their farms and plantations, took up their muskets, and answered the call of their country. They became officers in Washington's army. After the war... These officers formed a society called the Society of the Cincinnati, naming it after the patriotic old Roman farmer. To it belonged Washington, Hamilton, Lafayette, Kosciuszko, and many other American and foreign officers who had served with honor in the Continental Army. Today their descendants, one representing each officer, belong to the Society of the Cincinnati. The French members presented Washington with a magnificent badge of the order, studded with about two hundred precious stones, diamonds, rubies, emeralds, and amethysts. Washington himself is called, yes, one, the first, the last, the best, the Cincinnatus of the West. Brother Jonathan, I do hereby earnestly recommend it to all to meet together for social prayer to Almighty God, that he would preserve our precious rights and liberties, and make us a people of his praise, and blessed of the Lord as long as the sun and moon shall endure. Jonathan Trumbull, to the people of Connecticut, June eighteenth, 1776. Patriotic and plucky was Connecticut, the state of the Charter Oak. It had been a liberty-loving colony from the days when its first settlers, with their wives, children, household goods, and cattle, came through the howling wilderness literally howling with savage Pequot Indians, and settled on the banks of the beautiful Connecticut River, whose name in the Indian language means Long River. 
those brave settlers came into the wilderness so that they might have religious and civil liberty almost their first act was to frame in sixteen thirty nine a constitution for their own government it was the first constitution in america to make no mention of allegiance to king or great britain it breathed the free spirit of american independence over a hundred years before the declaration of independence is it strange then that jonathan trumbull governor of connecticut under king george should have been a patriot he was more than loyal to american freedom he was washington's friend and supporter he supplied washington with soldiers and ammunition he supplied more than half the powder used at bunker hill there is a tale that once when washington was hard put to it for ammunition and it looked as though the campaign would fail for lack of powder and shot washington said to his officers we must consult brother jonathan then washington consulted governor trumbull and got his powder and shot after that whenever a difficulty arose in the army the men would say we must consult brother jonathan so the saying became a byword later people nicknamed the united states brother jonathan just as england is called john bull the bloody footprints it was the terrible winter of seventeen seventy seven the snow lay thick on the ground and the cold was piercing through the snow a detachment of patriot troops was wearily plodding toward winter quarters at valley forge half naked hungry and numb with cold they pushed on presently washington rode slowly up after them he was eyeing the snow intently through which they had marched there was something on its frozen surface something red that he had tracked for many miles saluting the commanding officer washington drew rein how comes it sir he said that i have tracked the march of your troops by the blood-stains of their feet upon the frozen ground were there no shoes in the commissary's stores that this sad spectacle is to be seen along the public highways your excellency may rest assured replied the officer that this sight is as painful to my feelings as it can be to yours but there is no remedy within our reach when the shoes were issued the different regiments were served in turn it was our misfortune to be among the last to be served and the stores became exhausted before we could obtain even the smallest supply washington's lips compressed while his chest heaved with the powerful emotions that were struggling in his bosom then turning toward the troops with a trembling voice he exclaimed poor fellows then giving his horse the rein he rode sadly on during this touching interview every eye had been bent upon him and those two words warm from the heart of their beloved commander and full of commiseration for their sufferings reached the soldiers there burst gratefully from their lips god bless your excellency your poor soldier's friend george washington park custis arranged an appeal to god on a cold wintry journey to valley forge mrs washington rode behind her husband on a pillion he was on his powerful bay charger and accompanied by a single aide-de-camp on his arrival at valley forge washington placed her in the small but comfortable house of isaac potts a quaker preacher so in all the trials of that winter at valley forge washington had the most earnest sympathies cheerful spirit and willing hands of his loving wife to sustain him and share in his cares she provided comforts for the sick soldiers every day except sundays the wives of officers and other women too assisted her in knitting socks patching garments and making shirts for the poor soldiers every fair day she might be seen basket in hand and with single attendant 
going among the huts and giving comfort to the most needy sufferers. On one occasion she went to the hut of a dying sergeant, whose young wife was with him. His misery touched the heart of Mrs. Washington, and after she had given him some food prepared with her own hands, she knelt down by his straw bed and prayed earnestly for him and his wife, in her sweet, serious voice. But it was not only women who prayed in those terrible days at Valley Forge. The cold and suffering increased. One day, friend Potts was walking by the creek not far from his house when he heard a solemn voice speaking. He went quietly in its direction and saw Washington's horse without a rider tied to a sapling. He stole nearer and saw Washington himself kneeling in a thicket. He was on his knees in prayer to God, asking him for help. Tears were on Washington's cheeks, and quietly the friend stole away. On entering his house, he burst out weeping. When his wife asked him what was the matter, he said, if there is any one on this earth whom the Lord will listen to, it is George Washington, and I feel a presentiment that under such a commander there can be no doubt of our eventually establishing our independence, and that God in his providence has willed it so. Benson J. Lossing, Arranged End of Chapter 12 Read by Sarah Jump